Well, welcome everybody. It's good to see you this weekend at Grace. Thanks for uh, being here and coming out. Uh, my name is Jeff. If I've never met you before, uh, I'd love to say hi to you. I'll be out in the lobby afterwards, and uh, you can say hi to me. You can high-five me. You can slip me cash, whatever you want to do. I'd, uh, I'd love to connect with you a little bit out there. Hey, um, I want to just press in again to what Nate was talking about with discovery groups. Uh, those are a big deal, and if you're newer to Grace or if you're that person who should have gone to Discovery like five years ago, but you didn't, and it's been a New Year's resolution every year, and, but now you're embarrassed, and you should, and God's convicting you right now because I keep talking about it, uh, I want you to come out to it today, okay? So one o'clock, um, you will find this valuable. And what, what will happen by the end of the Discovery, I know Grace is like a, a big church, but by the time you get through Discovery, it'll feel like a small church. Uh, you'll know some people. You'll know your way how to navigate things. Uh, you're, you're, you'll understand like how to get your kids tied in, how to meet friends, how to connect in different kind of connect groups. And uh, it's just, it's just an invaluable thing that you can go through and be a part of it. So even if you haven't signed up, come out today. Uh, I'll be there. I'm teaching it uh, this, this week. And so we'd love to connect with you and uh, love to have you uh, be a part of that. If you are watching online and you watch online consistently, uh, this is a great time to come offline and come in and uh, be a part of Discovery. If you're watching at one of our live stream sites, great time to come in and be a part of Discovery, and it will just help you make all those connections as well. So I encourage you guys to do that also, okay? All right, so uh, we're in a series right now called Good Goals, Bad Gods. The premise of the series is this, that goals are great. Uh, goals steer us, they point us, they set our priorities. But if they become the things that we live for, if I look and say, I have to accomplish that or I feel like a failure, I draw my identity from that. God only blesses me if he gives me what I want. If those are the kind of things that drive us and we look and say, those are the things I live for, then we would say that we've elevated that goal to a God, right? That it's Christ and Christ alone who is worthy and has the authority to define us, to direct us, to give us our identity, to give us our security, to define happiness for us. And if I look to something else besides Christ to do that, I've in essence made that thing a God and made God a goal. And now I'm really out of whack spiritually. And so what we said is we want to make the goal subject to the God. We want to make God the God of the goal, right? And so it's what does Christ want? Who does he say I am? What am I called to? And then how do I set in kind of the orderly fashion to pursue those things. So a couple of weeks we've talked about this. Uh, Pastor Ryan was at bat last weekend talking about health and our bodies and things like that. All of that is out online. It's on our website. It's also on the app. If you want to catch up with it, I encourage you to do that and, uh, and be up to speed with the whole conversation. This weekend, I want to take us to a place with our goals and I want to talk about something that we don't actually talk about much in church, which is kind of funny when I think about it, because it's a huge part of our life. Uh, it's a part of our life that we spend uh, an, an extraordinary amount of time uh, doing. It's a part of our life that a lot of our other goals, dreams, desires are tied to or are interwoven with, and yet it's not like a subject that we often pick out and talk about at church. Don't worry, it's not sex. That's in a couple weeks. But what I want to talk about uh, this week is I want to talk about work, work, and how God views 
work. And, and off the bat, you might think, does God say much about work? And I think you're going to be surprised how much he says about work, because of course God knows that uh, we were created as human beings to work. Our need to work and desire to work is a part of us being created in the image of God. I had a friend ask me last night, they said, uh, I thought work was a part of the fall. I thought it's because of sin that we had to work. I said, no, it's, it's because of sin that our work is not as productive as it could be. But Adam in, worked before sin entered the world. God is a worker. So be, working and the need to work, the desire to work, the lessons of work come because we're created in the image of God. And work is a huge part of our lives, right? Uh, from, through all generations. So some of you are right now you know, in the marketplace and you go to work, whether it's a job site or an office, whatever you do, right? You go to work. Uh, many of us, many of you are students. Your job right now is school. You spend the vast majority of your time there and you're at the phase of life where you, your job is to learn, to be trained in work. You get to college, a lot of us do both simultaneously, right? We go to school and we learn. So some of us are in that phase of life and we're doing school, we're working simultaneously or maybe you're in a, an apprenticeship or an internship and you're like, I'm working but I'm kind of learning simultaneously. But all through... Uh, every generation, there is this idea of work and the value of it and how we approach it. Now, when we talk about work and we talk about what we call the theology of work, if we looked at the whole Bible and understood how God thought about work, if we were going to talk about that, we could literally spend two months easy talking about that. There's so much of it in the Bible. So what I'm going to do this weekend because we're kind of syncing up with our series here, I'm going to talk about a goal that we have related to the work. And I'm actually going to uh, take you to a passage of Scripture that talks about a unique kind of sliver of how we approach God with this, the idea of work or not working and how we can align our lives with that. I'm doing that because for many of us in our culture, when we think about the work, there, there's kind of a couple sides of it. There, there's the side of, I want to achieve, I want to be a killer, I want to get rich, all that kind of stuff. We're not going to talk about that. We talked about that a bit in week one. There's the other side of it that applies to us a lot. And many times when we set goals when it, when, in relationship to work, our goal is tied to us being free from work. What I, what, what I want the most out of work is not to work, right? And so if you're a kid, that you might have a goal stated or unstated that like I'm, I need to find the easy path through school, get this over with as fast as possible. I'm going to cut these corners and get around, around it. Uh, if I'm in the training phase of life, like college, internship, residency, that kind of stuff, it's really easy to like click through the mo. I just, I just want to do what I want to do. I just got to get this over with. I don't know why they demand this stuff. What's a piece of paper mean anyways? Like that kind of a thing. Like I want to get to where I want to go. And then for some of us in the marketplace, uh, it's the idea that I, I, I live for the weekend, right? So I do what I have to do, keep the man off my back. The boss is dumb. Nobody knows how to run this company. I'm complaining all the time, and I just want out of here. I can't wait to retire. And then when you retire, the mindset is I retire so that I can do what I want to do the rest of my life. And that is often the goals that we have when it's associated with work. How do I get free from work? So free from work, good goal, 
bad God. And I, I think we're going to be surprised a little bit what God has to say about that and what the theology of work or God's mind on work is. Uh, this is what happens. When I take that mindset that work is something that's in my way, right? It's a necessary evil. It's an obstacle. I just need to push it off, blow it off, get past it so that I can go do what I want to do. When I take that mindset and I approach life that way, what happens is I, I get out of sync with God and I take the purpose of work and I, I dull it down and I don't get the value out of it that God created it to have. So if I have the mindset that work is a necessary evil, and, and, and if I could just get out of work, you know, if I hit it big, I, I would retire. If I hit the lottery, I would go into my boss. I would be like, take this job and politely offer it to another person. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. Right? So when I have that mindset, I, I don't embrace work the way that God created me to embrace work. So when I have that mindset, for instance, I rob work of its dignity. Instead of work being something that, that teaches me something or is an honorable thing, it's a dumb thing that dumb people do. The smart people get out of it. The smart people cut the corner. The smart people work the angles. It's the dumb person who gets straight A's. It's the dumb person who does everything in the homework. It's the dumb person who hustles when the coach isn't watching. It's the dumb person who does their work at the workplace or at the office place in that way, right? I rob it of its dignity. When I rob it of its dignity, what I, what I do then is I rob myself of what work can give me. The best self-esteem lesson that you could ever have is the self-esteem that comes from hard work. When I work hard, I feel good about myself. When I work hard, I, I, I discover my potential. Because if I'm always cheating at math and blowing the quiz off and cutting around the test, I never really learn if I can do math or not. I never learn what my potential is. When, I, when I'm always cutting a corner and, and trying to take the shortcut at work, I never really find out if I'm able to do more than I'm doing, right? Because I, I place work in its wrong place and I rob myself of the potential of it. I dumb down what I could do in life. I never find out what my ceiling is because I won't put the effort into it. And for the Christ follower, when I approach work that way, this is a big one, ready? I actually discredit the message of Christ. I discredit the message of Christ because I have the wrong view or an ungodly view of what work is and what its place is in my life, okay? So wh what would God say about this? And again, I think you're gonna be a little surprised because it, it feels weird that I'm like, hey, we're gonna talk about work this weekend. But it feels a little bit weird. But you're gonna be surprised what the Bible has to say, I think, and maybe how strongly... God says things in the Bible. So let me show you. Grab your Bibles if you got them. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's something in the chairs. It's page 828. And then all these notes are on your app if you want to open up the Grace Church app, okay? So Th 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, page 828, or use the app. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote what we're about ready to study. So 
Second Thessalonians is a letter that was written to a brand new church in a city called Thessalonica. Okay, so Thess- people who lived in Thessalonica were called Thessalonians. People who live in Akron are called Akronites, okay? So this letter is to the Thessalonians. It's a brand new church. They're trying to get their head around the gospel, and then they're trying to get their head around kind of all of who God is and, and what he would want. So Paul writes this letter to help this new church, and he's leaning into this church because every church has cultural issues, right? So Grace Church has cultural issues. There's certain things about our culture that affect our church differently than it would affect another church. And one of the cultural issues that the church of Thessalonica was dealing with was this view of how we viewed work and how we respected the people who worked or didn't work and how that affected their relationship with God, okay? So Paul writes this letter, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. He says this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. You should stop right there. Let's just pause, okay? Whenever the Bible says command, when God says I command you or through the apostle Paul, he says we command you, we ought to dial that in big time because God here in this passage is not saying, hey guys, I got a really good suggestion for you. Or you know what would make you happier? You know what could improve your life? You know what would be your best life now? He's not saying any of that. He's looking and he's saying, hey, church, my church, my follower, my people called by my name, this is what you are to do. Okay, it's a pretty strong statement. In fact, this whole passage is, is a pretty strong passage. You're going to feel that as we go through it because this was such a big deal that, that people's view of work was disrupting the church in Thessalonica and it was discrediting the message of the gospel. So Paul leans in and he says, listen, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we command you, big deal, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. We command you to stay away from every believer who is idle and who is disruptive. They are not to receive the benefit of the community of the church. They, they are not to think of themselves as a healthy part of the community of the church. You should not give them credibility. You should not listen to them. You should not lean into them because they are idle and because they are disruptive. You should stay away from them. Okay, now, what does, what does that mean? Paul uses two terms, and he says, I want you to stay away from people who are idle and disruptive. What does it mean? Idle is this. Another way that the Bible talks about people who are idle, uh, in the Old Testament, the Bible uses the word sluggard. And all through the, especially the book of Proverbs, you can find all kinds of verses that talk about a sluggard or what an idle or lazy person is like. So in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says that a sluggard is someone who refuses to get out of bed. A sluggard refuses to work. A sluggard avoids work. These are not people who cannot work or cannot get out of bed. He's not talking about somebody who's sick or disabled. It's somebody who is unwilling to do that, someone who is willfully idle. The idle person is one who always has an excuse for not working, always has a justification for other people meeting their needs and other people carrying their 
wait for them. Uh, in, in a modern context, it would be this idea that when, when given the opportunity, an idle person will watch TV, they'll play video games, they'll be on the internet, they'll be on the golf course, they'll be on the beach, right? They will, they will choose anything besides work. They will not be productive. They will not produce for themselves. So they will not carry their own weight, kind of their own responsibility. They will not improve themselves. They will not improve the gifts that God trusted them with. They will not improve the talents God gave them. They will not uh, uh, invest the time, the life that God gave them in a positive way. They will not work to benefit other people. So they will not bless their friends. They will not bless their family. They won't create wealth to be generous with. They won't help to do things for other people. And if they're a Christ follower, this is only for Christ followers, they will not work and improve themselves for the sake of the body of Christ. The Bible is very clear that the Bible says that God is the one who forms the church. Jesus forms the church each and every part of it, the Bible says. So it's God who brings Grace Church, for example, together. And the church then, as a body, we are to work collectively in certain areas. So we share our money with each other, right? We, we share our talents with each other. We play the drums, the guitar, run the sound system, whatever. We, we share those talents with each other. And we share our spiritual gifts with each other. The idle person, the sluggard, does none of that. They, they look and say, man, I, I, God has given me a life. God has given me talent. God's given me the ability to create wealth. God's given me a spiritual gift. I'm not using any of it. I'm binging on Netflix. I don't feel like getting up this weekend. I'm signed up to serve, but I'm not doing it. I know I have this spiritual gift, but oh, I got to go learn about it and then study the Bible and then I don't want to do any of that. That's the slugger, the idle mindset. And Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, don't have anything to do with them. Don't give them credibility. Don't tie into them. Don't bless them with the benefit of being a part of the body because they will not work. So he talks about an idle person. Then he talks about a second person, and he talks about a disruptive person. So an idle person will often become a disruptive person. A disruptive person has a lot of the same characteristics of an idle person. They, they will not work. They will not invest themselves, but they take it a step further. They will not work. They will not produce. They, they will not improve themselves. And then a disruptive person then will look at the people around them and demand that you meet their needs. You should get up and find a job. What? That's ridiculous. Pay my cell phone bill, right? You should, I'm not doing that. And they'll look and say, you owe me. You should care for me. It's your job. You're the one with the money. You should take care of me. They'll disrupt. They'll disrupt relationships. They're the roommate that doesn't pay their rent. They'll disrupt families. There's the, the kid that won't move in life. They'll disrupt <coughs> churches, which is what Paul is leaning into. They'll even disrupt societies. And Paul says, have nothing to do with that disruptive person. 
When Paul says that, he's thinking specifically of a group of people that were present in Thessalonica, and they were, they were called Sinic philosophers. And a Sinic philosopher was a, a Greek philosopher that would travel around, they would move into a town, and they would go to the place of influence in that town. They usually called it the city center of the town square. Our places of influence now are places like um, coffee shops or, or maybe universities. Where it's where ideas were exchanged and bantered about, right? So these Sinic philosophers would move into those places. They would, they would share their view on the world. They would say, let me tell you what's wrong with society. Mom and dad, let me tell you what's wrong with the way that you approach life. Hey, church family, let me tell you what's wrong with the church. I have thought about it. I have philosophized about it. Here are my views on it. And then a Sinic philosopher would do this. After they shared their views on life, family, politics, whatever, they would then look and say, hey, in exchange for me blessing you with my wisdom, you should feed me. You should pay me. You should take care of me. I'm entitled to that. And when the producing people of the culture would not do that for the Sinic philosophers, the Sinic philosophers were known for becoming very aggressive. And they would start to accuse the producers, you're hoarding wealth. You're the super rich. You're the, you're the big corporate. You're the one. You're the government. You're... And they would accuse but they wouldn't earn and they wouldn't work. Now, what Paul does is fascinating here. He, remember, he's talking to this church at Thessalonica, and he's saying, watch out for these idle and disruptive people. He says, you need to stay away from them. Instead of giving them credibility or enabling them, <clears throat> what you need to do is follow my example, our example. And so he says in verse 7, he says, for, for you yourselves know uh, how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to anyone. Paul was a church planter, a missionary, and so he would kind of show up into a town unannounced. And he would start proclaiming the gospel, kind of sharing his wisdom, his philosophies, right, about life and government and politic and personal uh, life in the church. And so he would look sometimes a lot like what these Sinic philosophers would do. And, and Paul would show up in this way. And this is when he first showed up at Thessalonica, when he first got there, there would have been no church body there would have been nobody to stay with. There would have been nobody to like support him or help him out. Like we might send a missionary or a church planner today. And he says to these folks, he goes, remember when we showed up? We didn't share the gospel with you and then demand that you pay for it. Remember when we showed up? We didn't share, we didn't teach you the Bible and say, now you got to buy me supper, sushi, right? We didn't do that. He said, when we showed up, we weren't idle, we didn't need anybody's food. We, didn't, we weren't a burden to anyone. In fact, on the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul was known to come in and set up a micro business. 
he had a trade. He was a tent maker by trade. And so Paul would go out to the city center. He would engage in conversation of all the worldviews. He would go down to the temple courts. He would, he would do that if there was a temple there. He would teach the Bible all day. And then he'd pick up a few contracts to make tents, and he would make tents all night. And he looked and he said, hey, listen, we have credibility. You trust us. You know our maturity because we never demanded anything from you. We came in love. We came in truth. We never came to kick up a meal or to, kick, or to take money from you. We, the gospel cost you nothing. And these people that are in your church that are saying, hey, that you should support us and we're unwilling to work, we're lazy, we're sluggards, we're idle, we're disruptive, Stay away from them and remember how we approach this process and, and we, we set the example for you and for the people around us. We want you to follow that example. And then he goes on. He says something pretty strong here. He says, we did this not because we didn't have the right to such help because Paul would say, I'm an apostle it's very right. Paul's the same one that says, uh, when, when people are in ministry, you shouldn't muzzle the ox. That's why we pay pastors and we pay missionaries, right? We use God's money to do that kind of stuff so that we can do ministry full time. Paul said that. Paul is also the one who said, if you serve the gospel, the gospel should provide for you. That's the same idea. He wrote those kind of things. So he says, it's not that we didn't have the right to it, we, we could have asked, because I'm an apostle, I'm in full-time ministry, Paul was said, it would have been fine, but we did it in order to offer ourselves as a model. We wanted to show you that this cultural tendency to avoid work is not something that pleases God. So we wanted to model that for you, to imitate, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, <clears throat> the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. If you won't work, you shouldn't receive the benefits from other people's work, right? Now, in the ancient world, uh, it was a subsistence culture. So if you wanted to eat, you had to grow food and eat it. If you wanted some protein, you had to go, like, kill something and get some protein. You couldn't run down to Aldi's like the rest of us do, right, and, and buy food. And that's why the Bogue family goes to Aldi's for, like, 10 bucks. You can buy, like, 1,000 pounds of whatever you want at Aldi's. It's fantastic, right? So there, there, you couldn't go do that kind of stuff. And so when you took food from someone, you literally took food off their table. You literally took the results of their labor and used it for yourself, Paul says, we never did that. And if people are lazy, slugger, disruptive, idle, they should not receive the benefit of other people's labor. They haven't earned it. They are not deserving of it. The one who doesn't work should not eat. The one unwilling to work is one that should not receive that benefit. What Paul is saying is this. When they're hungry, it will motivate them to do what they need to do. When they're hungry, they will work. And when they work, they align back up with how God created us and what God called us to do. They sync back up with the theology of work that God has. And so by not blessing them, by not being generous to them, by not enabling them, 
you are actually helping them to correct their course and line up where God would want them to be. The idle and disruptive person who refuses to take responsibility for themselves, who feels entitled, who demands benefits, who is quick to accuse producers of being selfish because they will not entitle them or give their benefits to them. That person is one that is not to be listened to, one that is not to have credibility, and one that should be avoided. They're not to be the object of the benefits of God's people. Now, I want to just kind of pause here for a second and, and remind us, that mindset cuts across all generations. Basically, I'm sticking up for millennials right now, right? Leave them alone. I know millennials that work like crazy. They work hard in school. They work hard on the sports field. I know millennials that work full-time and go to school full-time and are, work like maniacs. They are your interns and your residents here at Grace Church. Okay? I, there are millennials that are defending our country right now. There are millennials that wear badges and are, are, are patrolling our streets. Leave them alone. I know lazy millennials. I know lazy whatever's after millennials. I know lazy Gen Xers. I know lazy baby boomers. So this is not a generational thing. We tend to do that because generations work differently than other generations do. We tend to be like, yeah, all the kids are lazy. That's not necessarily true. They just might approach work differently than you or I do. And so Paul is saying, when you see an idle person, right? When you see an idle person, a disruptive person, you are not to enable them in any way, shape, or form. Because when you remove the enabling, they will self-correct the behavior and they will break out of these destructive cycles that has caused them to believe that being free from work is the greatest goal in life. Those unwilling to work are never molded by work. And God created us to work in part because he shapes us he prepares us. We were created in advance to do the good works God prepared for us to do, right? He makes us, he shapes us through work. He molds us through it. So if I'm unwilling to work, I never learn the lessons that come from working. Those things are never downloaded into my life. If I never learn to work, I never earn the satisfaction that comes from pushing through the difficulties of working. If I never learn to work, I never earn the credibility that comes from working. When I work, I mature. When I work, I am given responsibility. When I work, people trust me. When I work, I earn credibility. And I do that personally, but more importantly than personally, I do that for Christ. This is a statement that I put on my notes. I think it's an important one. The credibility of the gospel message is often established by the credibility of the gospel messenger. The credibility of the gospel message is often established by the credibility of the gospel messenger. And one of our greatest platforms to establish credibility that God gives us is work. I can earn trust, I can earn responsibility, I can earn maturity, I can earn respect, I can earn dignity by working. And that gives me, as a gospel messenger, 
credibility. And I can use that credibility to lend credit, so to say, to the gospel message. But the guy at work who's the cynic, who's the complainer, this is dumb, and the boss is dumb, and this company doesn't know what they're doing, and what they ought to do is. When that is what you are known for in the marketplace or in the classroom, and then suddenly you pipe up about the gospel message? See, people learn not to listen to you a long, long time ago because of your theology of work. When, when, when the kid at school who doesn't try hard, not talking about getting straight A's, I'm talking about trying hard. When, when you're the kid that everybody knows is, is skirting the edges, everybody knows that you downloaded 45% of that paper off the internet. You brag about it. You laugh about it. It's the, it's the dumb kids, the kiss-ups who do the best, right? And then suddenly there's a place where the gospel needs to be injected or there, there's a place where a biblical perspective needs to come to bear and you pipe up and your classmates don't respect you and your teacher doesn't respect you because you never earn the credibility that comes through hard work. When you're the kid that takes a shortcut when the coach isn't, isn't looking, when, when you're the kid that doesn't really ever practice their instrument when you're supposed to be in the orchestra, when you never really nail things down for the musical, see, suddenly your lack of effort. Nobody's talking about straight A's. Nobody's talking about starting on varsity. But the kid that hustles and tries is a respected kid that has credibility. And then when they speak up or give voice to the gospel, that credibility comes through as well. When you're the guy or the woman at work and you're the deep thoughts person, I'm really called to this job for the people. So sometimes my productivity is low, but I invest in people. Not when you're on the clock, you don't. When you're on the clock, your commitment is to your boss. They have purchased a service from you, right? Paul would say, we labor day and night. Have coffee with those folks after work, not during it. See? And when you're that person, when you're the person, nobody wants you on their team. Nobody wants you on their project. The boss never really trusts you, doesn't have a good reason to get rid of you, but doesn't have any reason at all to promote you. See? Because the effort isn't there. The engagement isn't there. The credibility of the gospel message is often established by the credibility of the gospel messenger. That's a huge thing. If you were going to get a tattoo this week and I get that one, you know, if you're going to tweet it, I'd tweet that one. Because it's a massive thing. And God says, right, I created you that way. I created my message to be brought through you as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And I gave you the perfect platform to earn this trust and respect and credibility. And it's called work. And if your goal is always to get out of it or get around it, then you're not in sync with my thinking and my heartbeat for it. Paul goes on and he says this. He says, we hear, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. A busy body is a person 
who does not have enough work in their life. So because they're idle and because they're disruptive, they have all this free time to disrupt other people and to cause them to be idle. In the modern context, a busybody is the person who's just trolling, trolling social media all the time. And I'm not talking about marketing on social media. I'm talking about they respond to every post. They respond to every tweet. They respond to every snap. And it's all they do all day. And you see it happen and you think, aren't you in geometry right now? Aren't you at work right now? Some estimates say that uh, productivity at work is down up to 40% because people are on social media most of the day. It's a busy busy. A busy, a busy body is, a, is the gossip at the office. Their, their life and their mind is not full enough. They're not dedicated enough or focused in enough on what they should do. So they, they have plenty of time to gossip and be in other people's business. A busy body is a, boor, a bored teenager. What are you doing? Nothing. Well, I'm bored. Why don't you improve yourself? Why don't you go practice sport, your, your sport? Why don't you go practice the guitar? Why don't you go, oh, I'm bored. What have you done today? I watched 15 seasons of The Office twice. <laughs> right? It's a busy body. I'm filling my time with nonsense and never being productive. A busy body is a spoiler, a spoiled kid. Mom, mom, can we go? Mom, mom, can we go? Mom, mom. Jeff. You can't make a little kid work. Yes, I can. Let me introduce you to Heidi Bogue. She will teach you how to make children work, right? But looking and saying, you know what, kids? We play after we work. Play is our reward for work. You want to go to the movies? Let's clean the house real quick. You want to have a pizza night? Let's get our laundry put away real quick. See? It's a spoiled kid. They have nothing to do. They're driving you nuts because they're not doing anything productive. They're not working. And Paul says that's what happens. Disruptive, idle people become busy bodies. Such people, we command and urge the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. He looks at those people and says, stop it. Fill your life with something productive. I don't need the money. Then go volunteer. Go disciple people. Start a Bible study. I don't know the Bible that well. Take a class through the program here at Grace. Learn it then so that you can do these productive things, see? Settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of what's doing good. And the, and the next thing that Paul says is shocking. I hadn't read this passage in a while until I was gearing up for, for teaching it this weekend. And when I read it, I was like, oh, that's right. That says that. And what he's about ready to say is very foreign to our cultural ear. Okay? So prepare yourself. Here's what he says. He goes on. He says this. He said, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Isn't that fascinating? Take note. Disruptive, idle, busybody people. Don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed of how they are living their life. That is something that we don't talk about or think that way much in our culture. But Paul would lean into the, Thessalonica, uh, the people at Thessalonica who did not think like that or talk about that much in their culture either. And he might look at them and say, that's kind of the problem. The slacker has become the hero. The worker is the stooge. And he said, that's, 
that's something, if, if you have taken that mindset, that you're going to skate by in life, you're going to cut every corner, you're going to get through school because it's dumb and you just got to get it over with. You're going you're to beat the man at the office. You're going to beat the system. You're going to find the four-hour work week. Paul, Paul would look and say, you should be ashamed of that. That does not reflect God. God is not on perpetual vacation. And none of that reflects his character or his mindset. Paul, Paul would look and say, guys, there's a dignity that comes from work. There's a dignity that comes from self-sufficiency. There's a dignity that comes when I do my best. There's a respect that's built. And I'm not talking about wealth. I'm talking about work. We all know wealthy people that we don't respect. The Paris Hiltons of the world, rich as you can get, nobody respects her. The Kardashians, Rich as you can get, nobody respects them. In fact, they're a punchline, but they got money. And Paul would say, don't let the Kardashians become the goal. They should be ashamed that that's their life. Don't let idleness become the goal. Being a busybody, a distract that's not the goal. You should not associate with those people so that they feel what they should feel and they should feel ashamed. We should be ashamed of ourselves, Paul would say, when we just blow off school. Because it's my job right now, it's my responsibility. I should be ashamed of myself when, when I don't put in effort in the marketplace. It's it's my it's my calling in those moments. I should be ashamed of myself when, when I don't want to deal with my kids. Paul said, no, 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 that, that, that's not what you were created for. And all the good stuff that comes out of that is going to be taken away from you. And the dignity of work will be robbed, right? A man a husband, a father, a son who spends the day working is respected. Doesn't matter what he does. Doesn't matter if he punches a keyboard or swings a hammer. He's respected. He's honored. There's a, dig there's a dignity that comes from making my own way, carrying my own weight. There's a dignity that comes from supporting and helping the people that I love and care for. There's a dignity that comes in participating in, in the efforts of the body of Christ. And a man who does that is respected. A woman who works is respected and honored. There's a chapter in the Bible, Proverbs 31, that is mostly dedicated to saying that a woman who works should be blessed, honored, and lifted up. And when your mom put the roof over your head because your dad bolted, you respect your mom. When your wife is a worker like mine is, she's respected by her husband and her children. When you're a daughter... And you're looking and saying, I, I'm going to bear down. I'm going to give my best. You are respected by your siblings, by your peers, by your parents. You're trusted because of that. 
And Paul would say, if a person refuses to do that, they should feel ashamed, not proud, not proud that I got three more years out of college and didn't really learn anything, not, not proud that I got my mom and dad to pay for everything, not proud that I skated through school and learned nothing. He would say, no, 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 that, that dishonors God and it discredits the message of the gospel as it's supposed to come through you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He concludes, he says this. He says, yet yeah, don't regard them as enemies, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. He looks at the church, he says, warn them. Just like you would look at warn somebody and say, hey, your morality needs to be, needs to be submitted to God. Your marriage needs to be submitted to God. Hey, I just want to warn you, I want to let you know, your, your, your dating relationship needs to be submitted to God. Your finances need to be submitted to God. Paul looks and says, you need to look at uh, people and say, your work needs to be submitted to God. It's a huge part of your life. Oftentimes, it's where the bulk of our relationships come from. It's a huge platform that God has entrusted you with that you can utilize for the kingdom. And if you approach it where the goal is being free from it, then it's out of sync, right? The goal is not subject to God because God's theology of work, he would look and say, is, is to dive in, to do your best, full of integrity, earning credibility, and utilizing that for the proclamation of the gospel. When our goal to be free from work becomes the God that defines our life, the goal must be subject to God. For instance, when retirement becomes an excuse for selfishness instead of a freedom to serve, I'm going to say this. I'm going to get in trouble for it. So you can send an email. I won't read it, but go ahead. Mr. Anonymous always goes on a date with Mrs. Delete, right? So you can... I got to say this, right? Guys, listen, I love you. There is no biblical construct for retirement. You can't find it. There is no concept in the Bible where we hit 65 and what we do for the rest of our lives is whatever we want to do. If I was God and I looked at you and you were looking at retirement saying, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life is goof off. If I was God, I probably couldn't find a good reason to keep you alive. <laughs> Just being honest. It's a good thing I'm not God. I look at people like Bob Combs. Bob Combs is almost 80. He hit a point in his life where he no longer needed to create an income. It's different. Because he manages money well that the people God gave to him, Bob was a pastor, so he managed the money well, and he was able to look at the people of God and say, thank you, I don't need you to give me any more money. He's almost 80, he still works full time. Everything in the Bible says the older you are, the better you get at following Jesus. And what you need to do is help other people do it. I look at my friend Newt Larson. Did the same thing. Newt Larson is almost 80 years old. I can barely keep up with him. 
And he did the same thing. He managed his money. He got to the, a point where he's able to look at the people of God and say, hey, thank you. I don't need your money anymore. I, I set some of it aside as I went. He still, he works, he coaches, he trains young pastors. Young pastors listen to him, not because of what he did, but because of what he's doing. I look at my own father-in-law, Heidi's dad. He's 70 years old. He, he just this year looked at the church and said, love you, thank you, I don't need your money anymore. I said, dad, what are you gonna do? He said, I'm training to be a chaplain with the Billy Graham crisis response teams. I'm gonna go wherever the hurricane or the earthquake is. Sleep on a cot, as long as I can do it. See, I look at that and I think, it's because they work. I, I look at my father-in-law, I think, Dad, I'm proud of you, man. That's incredible. New, I'm proud of you. Tell me what you think. Bob, I'm proud of you. There's no biblical construct at all for retirement. There's lots of construct for I'm free of an income and now I can give myself fully to the work of the ministry. And I'm not saying don't catch an extra round of golf and I'm not saying don't take a month and go down and get out of this winter a little bit. I'm saying don't make it your life. It's not in the book. I think we get older, it's very true that we, you know, you can't carry the weight that you used to carry, no problem. You get older, sometimes it's stuff you don't want to do anymore, no problem. But to make freedom from work the thing that defines your life, problem. It's not in the book. And if the goal becomes the God, when a stage of our life is viewed as an opportunity for your responsibility, listen, college, college is not there to sow your wild oats. Just because people who don't love Jesus approach college that way, there's not another part of your relationship with God where you would say, the world defines how I interact with it, and that's okay because it's college. Times in my life we train. You're in you're a, a high school, junior high, you're in college. Maybe your folks are helping you out. Maybe they're not, I don't know. But the point of that is to train. And the person who works, who takes it seriously, is respected and becomes a loud voice and a bright light. So I engage it. Work allows me to do that, see? When, when the slacker is the hero and the worker is the stooge, when, when you look at your dad or your mom, you're like, they're dumb. Psst. This dumb way to make a living is dumb. Wait a minute. Are you the one in their basement telling them that their way of making a living is dumb? <laughs> Why isn't your mother or your father or whoever, a friend, whoever, honored? It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you do things differently than they do. My dad went to a factory, came home dirty every day. I have his tools. I have no idea what any of them do. <laughs> right? It's no big deal. I work, I work completely differently than my dad. If I get a blister, I go to the ER. <laughs> but to scorn, to mock, right? When your job is a burden and not a mission field. 
I just got to get this over with. No, it's got your salt and light. God placed you there on purpose. It doesn't mean you have to keep the same job forever. I'm not saying any of that. But to realize that all of my life is defined and directed by Christ, and that means that I have the job I have right now because God wanted me to have it ultimately. How do I redeem it? How do I work and bring credibility to the gospel when the freedom, the desire to get away from it is the thing that's defining and directing me instead of God defining and directing how I embrace and approach where I'm at, see? Then the goal has become the God and the goal needs to be subject and God needs to be the God of the goal. And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a really big deal to God. I mean, this is, this is one of a gazillion passages I could take you to. This is one, one sliver of God's theology of work because he looks and says, I know this is a big part of our lives. And just like these other aspects of our lives, this one needs to be subject to me as well, okay? Now, if a person can't work, if they can't work, if you're sick, if you're disabled, you should not be ashamed if a person can't work, they should be the object of our generosity and our charity. I am a kid. I was, my father had a stroke and a heart attack when he was 48 years old and had to take a medical disability. I am a kid who was raised on social security disability insurance. If it wasn't for the social safety nets of our nation, I would have not had a roof over my head or food in my belly. I'm proud of our country that we look at those who are not able to work and we have, our reaction is compassion. Our reaction is charity, our reaction is generosity. That's what it should be. If you're a part of the family of grace and you've lost a job or you have a medical crisis or you're sick or whatever, there's a divorce or whatever and you can't make ends meet, you need to come to the church and the church will surround you. We will make you the object of our compassion and, and, and our generosity. That is how the body of Christ is supposed to work. So nowhere is Paul talking about those who cannot. He's talking about those who are unwilling. Nowhere does he say make straight A's and make varsity. It's those who are unwilling, idle, disruptive. And he say warn them. Remind them that this is an act of worship. As a high school kid, your greatest act of worship may be to study for that test. As a, as a project manager, your greatest act of worship may be to deliver that project on time. I'm doing things as unto the Lord. I'm giving my best, and I'm earning that trust and that credibility through my, my work, okay? All right, probably a couple chairs that we're sitting in. So one chair would be this. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, the part of this conversation I would lean into is the trust and credibility side of it. That if you, if you want to earn trust and earn credibility, that work will allow you to do that. It's kind of the practical outcome of this conversation. So I want you to know that God loves you God created you, God died to redeem you and, and wants to have a close relationship with you. I want you to know that. But if you said, yeah, 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 Jeff, what do I do with this? I would say, yeah, okay, if you wanna 
earn trust and earn credibility and be respected and have dignity, you need to work, okay? Now, those of us who are followers of Jesus, I would take all of that and I would add it to this with these two questions. First question, is everything that you do done as if you are doing it directly for Christ? Did you study for that math quiz as if Jesus was your math teacher? Well, if Jesus was my math teacher, he could teach math and then I wouldn't have to study for the quiz. I know, don't make me come down there, right? You know what I'm saying, playing around. It, did I study for that science test as if Jesus was my science teacher? Is everything that I do done as if it's done unto Christ? Did, did you, did you, when you clocked in, did you give your eight hours or your 10 hours as if Jesus was your boss or Jesus owned the company? It's an act of worship. So I would, I would ask that question. Is everything I do done as if I am doing it for Christ? Here's the second question I would ask if I was sitting in that chair. Here it is, ready? Is there anything about my work that discredits the gospel? Is there anything about my work that discredits the gospel? And maybe we open up our hearts and our minds and let Jesus point that out to us through the Holy Spirit. Maybe we need some corrective behavior change in our lives, a different perspective. And maybe we can think through this big part of our life in a different way, okay? All right, I'll, I'll pray for us. The band will come out, give us a little space to think and pray. We'll hear from God. Jesus, we love you. Thanks for loving us. Thank you for the work that you have done for us. Thank you for the work you continue to do for us. And God, allow us to reflect you, to be your ambassadors as if you yourself were taking the class or on the job site. Or... So God, whether we're working without a paycheck, being a stay-at-home parent, working like crazy there, or working for a paycheck, responsible to a, a boss or shareholders or whoever. God, help us to see the parts of our life that maybe are not yielded or engaged. Help us to see the opportunities to proclaim you in these ways and then change us accordingly. And God, if, if there's somebody in our life that we need to look and warn Help us to do that with a discernment and a wisdom and a gentleness and a respect, but also a godly boldness uh, to interact with them appropriately. Help us in all these ways, in these still moments, Jesus, in your name, amen.